Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You may be seated. Father God, we pray that as your word is spoken and as we ponder upon you and your grace and your purpose for our lives, we pray that you would inspire us, that you would prepare us to be your servants, and yes, even those who reign with you in life, in your kingdom today and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Life has its many ironies. In a world that we only see in our generation what we see with our senses and with the limited experience we have, there are many questions that come to our minds that seem to bring a dichotomy. From the time we come out of the womb, if we're a, if we're a twin, we're grabbing the, the foot maybe of the one in front of us, pulling them down, and as, as certainly as soon as you start having toys in the house, you realize that there is something called competition in life. In fact, uh, it's a mini-hatred if someone steals that mini-lego that that older brother of yours has, right? And so it's this constant competition between men and women that begins early in life, and it, it's a competition that is seem pandemic. Even American society, we live in a world of, of external competition where It seems the God of our day is materialism, and so it's how you dress and how you look and what you drive, and and, uh, that's that's it, and you're the winner, and they're the losers, and you're of the lower caste. But this is nothing new. This concept of competition, which is real, is the manifest doctrine of all religions in the world. An ultimate competition for life and death for salvation that is won through works. Man, from the very beginning at the Tower of Babel, we see it, do we not, where they gather together and under the little, you can just see the little yellow public school buses gathering the children to lay the bricks for, for Nimrod's great temple to the sky so that man could be as God and he could qualify. Man has been on this qualification in religion after religion throughout the Old Testament, in the ancient world and throughout the modern era, the competition goes on, not just between brother and sister, not just between caste and caste and race and race, but a competition for the very future salvation that somehow in the heart of man everybody seeks. And that competition is a competition to the death. It's a, it's a blood thirst. I experienced that a little bit playing football. This kind of competition is 
What we do in 20th century, especially in Nebraska, is what we, we, we have our blood sport, but we simply eliminated most of the blood, except that comes out of the mouth when you hit him good. <laughs> it's kind of like the gladiatorial contest, but a little less extreme. But it's a blood sport. It's at the other guy. It's I win when I go over him. And I was a lineman, so, oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> Except when I was on the receiving end. And, and I was an offensive lineman, and they would take me out, and I would be laying on my back with my broken knee, and I'm saying, this isn't quite so much fun. But that competition seems to go throughout all of life. And as I've studied the ancient world, I find that that competition went on and on. All the religions of the world, beginning with those ancient Sumerian days and throughout Egypt and then into China and Asia and down to whether you go to the Aztecs or the Incas or down into Africa, you see this same competition, not, not just competition between man and man, but competition between the gods and the gods qualifying you. And you qualify through offering your children. In fact, as I've studied the ancient world, I find that there are five ancient evils that, that manifest themselves in all civilizations that are running from God, and they are these competitive virtues. Not really virtues, are they? The first is human sacrifice. Each of these ancient civilizations, whether it be Greece or Rome, Egypt, they made their hand creams out of aborted fetuses. They had very elaborate devices in places throughout the Middle East for aborting children, especially baby girls left out to die in Rome. Plato advocated abortion of female infants as a good thing. The ancient world is filled with the shedding of other men's blood so that you might qualify. In fact, you see this even in the scriptures being defined. When the Bible says in Micah chapter 6, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? The ancient world is filled with the death of infants, sacrificed so that the adult might attain heaven. I will be forgiven. I will have a good crop if I simply take that baby and cut it up. Or with the ancient Mayans, take my firstborn and drown it in the sacred waters. Interesting, the Mayan civilization went down drinking those same waters and disappeared from the face of the earth. But that's only the first of the ancient pagan rituals that were very competitive. The second was tyranny. It was survival of not the fittest, but survival of the most evil. And in this competition for life, only a few would win, supposedly win. And so the tyrant would own it all. As we see in the great wonders of the world, of the ancient world, they were all built to false gods and or built to tyrants. And who built them? The slaves, the people that 
had to worship either that tyrant or these false gods in some hope that they may too attain some degree of eternal life. How would you like to be an Egyptian and spend your 30 years on earth until you were thrown away on the side of the road and made into salve for the rock and spend your life dragging a 12,000-pound stone 200 miles to build another man's tomb? And when you were finished with your job, be stuffed inside the tomb and be suffocated with a dead mummy. That was life in the ancient world. That's life today in many civilizations that are living under false religion. So tyranny. Tyranny is not really a fun form of competition, but it's dominated. It dominated Russia. It dominated China in the 20th century, and over 200 million people died under the wrath of Soviet atheism. Scourging enslavement of other nations. I find that without productivity and producing within oneself and developing a proper view of creativity and competition, what happens to societies is that they they, they self-implode, they are non-creative, and they have to go out and take from others. So they make what they make, as ancient Rome did, by not inventing anything except concrete. It's the only thing that Rome ever did invent. This great, illustrious civilization basically borrowed everything they had, including their gods, from others by stealing, raping, killing, and only survived until they ran out of civilizations to rape. Then they themselves were eaten. The fourth of these principles or evils of the ancient world that have manifest themselves in nations of all kinds, even in our day, is autonomous laws. Those are laws apart from the law of God where the king's law or ruler's law manifests itself and the king controls all of the law and says basically, I will be blessed, you will be cursed. Hammurabi's law is seen on obelisk where... The, their God is looking at him saying, these are the gods I give to you. It's interesting that the laws that were given to Hammurabi were for everyone else except for he and his rulers. He didn't have to live by those same laws that he gave to others. That's ruler's law as opposed to the just law of God. The fifth principle is the persecution of true believers. Every nation that turns its back on God and individuals who turn their back on God, they will tend to persecute the truth. And their competition is to step on others and especially the believers on their way to what they think is nirvana, what they think is salvation, what they think will be a qualification for them to get to the top of the heap. It's a blood sport. Others' blood spilt that I might somehow attain salvation. Of course, we know there's another way. And that way is seen in Scripture, and we've been singing about it all morning. Life is a competition, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But competition in another way, in the real world, the way the real world works, the competition is already over. And God has looked to the human race and found it wanting. 
and every one of us died at the starting line. We're dead. We failed. Romans chapter 3. In the book of Romans, if you don't feel dead, read Romans 3. If you don't know your flesh, can't do it, just read Romans 1 through 8. As we read in Romans 3, verse 9 and following, starting in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is in their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the ways of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the picture of the competition. And the competition has ensnared the entire human race because Adam, being our progenitor, has given his deathly stamp upon our hearts and our minds. And the human race stands at the beginning of the competition for eternal life, slain, destroyed. And only in a pretend world are men in their desperate struggle to deny who they are and their fallen nature do they then set up a false system of competition where they are greater than others. My grace is better than your race. My nation is better than your nation. My morality is better than your morality. And so the competition of life becomes a competition of blood to destroy your brother on the way to the top. And it is a blood competition. It is a competition that destroys all around you. The competition of jealousy and envy and strife. You see it in the Middle East with the supposed Arab Spring. You see it in the lives of so many in Europe who are crying out for more welfare and rioting in the streets. We see it throughout the world and even in America where there's this jealousy and this bitterness and there's looking outside for the solution, saying, if it was only that guy that didn't mess up my life, if it only that person that didn't that didn't destroy my ability at the starting blocks. If it wasn't for you that stole my money when I was young, I would be a wealthy man today. Oh, if it wasn't for those people that have done me wrong, that's why I'm where I'm at. Of course, the joy of this morning is seen beginning in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 6. It says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The competition of the world truly is a blood sport, but it's a blood sport in which only one qualifies to run the race, and it's Jesus Christ, and he qualified for us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would ever even dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Not only has he died for us, cleansed us, prepared us to glorify him and take dominion over his earth. He even declares it in verse 17 of Romans 5. He says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more through those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. Who are the ones who reign in life? They are those who know they were dead and accepted the fact that they had no hope. And they cried out to the Savior for his salvation through his blood. And he not only qualified us, he not only put his spirit within us, but sent us out for the cause of taking dominion over his entire earth which he gave us from the beginning and he will complete at the end of time. We are not just sinners saved by grace to wait for the rapture. We are not just evolved cockroaches on the highway of life hoping to be a little better. We are sons and daughters of the Most High who will see civilization and the nations of the world glorify our Savior. And it will happen in time and in space and he will do it through his subregions those that have been raised from the scum of the earth and been turned into mighty men and women of God. That is the miracle of history. That is the real competition. And that is where I want to be. Amen. Getting back to this competition idea in the Christian, because, you know, as Christians, we're also involved in a competition. Several places in Scripture, it talks about the fact that, that we need to run the race and we need to be like athletes and we need to run and we want to win. There's no such thing as socialism in the kingdom of God. There is a sense of victory in actually walking with God and then seeing His victory and seeing it in your life and seeing it in your, in your family and seeing it in culture and seeing it in your economics in every area of life. But how is that competition wrought? Many times when I look at the Christian community, it seems that we're going the old way of competition to get ahead on somebody else's sin. Look at him. Oh, he's got it wrong. Man, has he got it wrong. And boy, do I have it right. Fighting our way to the top of the Christian heap. And we have the right way all the way. As John Robinson is one of my favorite theologians of all time. He said that not all light has broken forth from the Word of God as of yet, so no one should claim that they have a perfect knowledge of all things. And he had that humility, and yet when he sent his army out, his 102 strong, and he put them on that ship in the summer of 1620, he left them with a farewell address, and he said, I send you out as an army with banners, and you shall overcome your enemies by dying. You shall overcome their tyranny through perseverance and you shall take dominion. Boy, that was a message of power and dominion, but it was not a message of, okay, now, 
Who's going to be the one that's going to get to the top of the hill? Crawl on your brother to the top. But it was a different kind of competition, wasn't it? That's what's called for if we look in the scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. And what do we see? It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Speaking to save men and women, how does competition relate to the Christian life? Am I competing with my brother Phil? Are we competing for what some kind of prize that maybe he's going to get one and I'm not, and and I'm beating him off to get the top prize? What is the scoop here? What is it? What kind of is this a is this another blood sport put in a Christian form? I like the contest, the concept here of a race because the pagans don't see life as a race; they see it as survival of the fittest. The Christian life is a different kind of life and a different kind of competition because we've already been qualified. And we've been made the bride of Christ. And we've been already forgiven. We've already been renewed, accepted in the beloved. And when I stand on those blocks, I stand on those blocks next to my brother and my sister, and I'm running a race, but I'm running a race to the end of my life, and I'm not looking at him, and I'm not beating him down, and I'm not trying to beat him to the finish line first. I'm running my own race. On the foundation that I'm already loved and accepted, regardless of what happens here at the end, whether I'm in first or second, whether I got this crown or that crown, I'm running for a different reason. When I was a young boy, I was adopted, but I did have a loving group of parents, a mother who adored me, and a father who, who allowed my mother to take me swimming at five in the morning for, for ten years in a row, from five to eight every morning, I would swim, and I would swim five and seven and eight miles a day, and I swam and I swam. I was a little skinnier than I am now, and I swam and I swam until I was 17 years old, and when I was 17 years old, I qualified for the Junior Olympics, and I was one of six, the six best swimmers in the state of California. But you know, when I got to that block, regardless of what position I was, and I ended up sixth, at the end of that race, I didn't care so much about who won that race. At that point, when I came to the end of that pool, you know what I looked up for? My mom. And you know why I run that race? I ran that race because my mom loved me. And she poured her life into me. And she spent all those years preparing me and I cared what my mom thought and that's a little human illustration of what real life is all about isn't it our real life is that our savior loves us so has he done good things for you Amen. have you been forgiven of sins that you should go to hell for have you made wrong decisions that that should have destroyed anyone else and yet he's He's, he's, he's wrapped his arms around you in the middle of the night and said, I love you. Wouldn't he even come back to me? Has he been with you in the night hour? Then, then you run the race of life for him because of what he's done for you. Amen. And you're not doing it on your brother. You're not doing it to compete with others. 
you're doing it for him, that you might glorify him, then yes, there will be crowns at the end of life. Yes, there will be great rewards, and we do want rewards. Nothing wrong with that. But all in the context of his love, and all knowing that at the beginning of this race, everyone that stands on that starting line, if they're standing there, it's only by the grace of God, and they've already been forgiven, just like you. So I'm not in competition with these people. I'm in love with these people. And they are my friends, and we are an army of God marching through history, humbly bowing before him because of what he's done for us. Isn't that the competition that's spoken of in the New Testament? A competition led by a loving Savior who qualified us. Now, in light of that, we come to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read about another competition. And Hebrews tells us, the context of this competition. Of course, Hebrews 11 sets the stage with this great pantheon of heroes who lived by faith and not seeing all that would happen. They died and many of them were sawn asunder. Others took kingdoms, but, but, but they paid a tremendous price. That great story of those heroes is spoken of here in verse 1. Therefore, we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Who's qualified us for the race? Jesus. Are we prepared? Not in the flesh. I don't feel prepared any morning I get up. But Christ has prepared me. He's qualified me for that race, so I get on the blocks. And I stand for him in his grace, and I say, yes, Lord, and one more day, let's go for the goal. Why? Because we have so great a cloud of witnesses. That inspires me. Yes, Christ is my Lord. Yes, Christ has done it all. But there's something about a human being who is a sinner, who's gone before, who's run the race, who has been victorious, that gives me hope that if this guy, this little Patrick, who killed somebody when he was young, we believe, and was brought up, that sin was thrown on him when he was in his 40s and 50s, and the church turned away from him because of his sins of his youth, that he could see the forgiveness of God and continue and, and save an entire nation by the time he's 75 years old. That's what happened in Ireland. Or others who felt unqualified, others who, who seemingly could have never won against all odds were able to shut the mouths of lions. When I look back at them and then I, I look to my future and I say, if God has done it for them, he can do it for me. Because we have so great a cloud of witnesses. So that when I look to the future, or when I look to our current state as a nation, I try not to look at it as a competition, as a, a group of people. The church is not doing it right. I'm, that's what I'm prone to say. Uh, you know, it's just not, it's just things aren't the way I want them to be. And, uh, you know, look at the mess that's out there. What difference can I make? I mean, look who's in presidency. 
Let's look back to the cloud of witnesses. Go back with me right now to 1590, and we're going to take a walk through London. And I want you to compare your circumstance right now with somebody in London in 1590. And we have a tour guide. His name is William Brewster. William Brewster used to work for the Queen until two years ago when his boss was was thrown in the dungeon and he ran for his life and became an assistant postmaster in a place called Scrooby. We've called him back down to London today and he's going to give us a little tour. And we're going to walk through London. Now, a little bit of this is fictional in that I've taken historians' polls from what, what London was like in the 16th century. And so all of this probably wouldn't happen to you in one day, but it could. Early in the morning, we get up from our little dank hotel room the streets are 12 feet wide, and as we step outside, our guide calls us away to the left, knowing that raw sewage is going to be dumped down that morning upon the street, and it runs down the middle of the street in rivers. Dank smell everywhere. As we went from street to street, the whorehouses are still going wild, and people drunk, and you hear the sounds, and arms are trying to drag us in. We walk down the street and come to a better part of town. We don't think that's probably where we want to stay. So we move on through London and we say, even though the sun is rising, the groans of these drunks continue to attack us. But refreshingly, we break out of that area of London. We break into, into the light and find ourselves awestruck at the west door of St. Paul's Cathedral. Hoping for spiritual renewal, we walk to the entrance and find the lottery being run by the cathedral to divest the poor folk of their last shilling. Gambling is so prevalent that George Whitstone proclaimed in 1586 there were in London more gambling houses to honor the devil than churches to serve the living God. Entering the cathedral, Brewster introduces us to the Dean of York, one of the high dignitaries of the church, and a noted user. Brewster explains to us that York and his associates were there making loans of 50, 60, and sometimes 100% interest to feed the gambling fever of rich and poor. As we leave the cathedral, we duck into an alley, narrowly escaping a band of highwaymen who are pillaging an entire neighborhood by the sword. Brewster explains that robbers rule the streets by day and by night. It is noon, and we come upon another open square where a crowd is gathered, drinking their wine and chewing their hard bread. They watch with anticipation as a supposed traitor has ropes tied to each leg and arm. At the command, the horses pull in four directions. And he is dismembered like a chicken. The lunch break is over, and the crowd disseminates. Tears stream down William's eyes. He knew this man. He was a fellow believer. What was his heinous crime, we ask? He had written a tract proclaiming the lordship of Christ over his church. Brewster pensively retorts, the punishment for such heresy is almost always death. He looks up in prayer to renew his spirit. To explain this injustice, Brewster guides us past the office of the Chief Justice of England, a lawyer, a former highwayman, a former crook named John Popham, who has been hired by the Queen to attack Christians. The postmaster explains that the Queen has appointed him, and he's called the Hanging Judge, except for those that bribe him. As we leave the Hall of Justice and cross the London Bridge, we can't help but focus on the, on the heads of over 30 persons who had been executed that day for high treason. A guard on the bridge notices our revulsion and jokingly proclaims, sorry, 
you came on such a slow day. Usually we have many more heads to greet you. We enter another area of open punishment. Thousands have gathered this day. And as we enter the open field, we see that a, that a gentleman of high ranking named Thomas Hawks is on the stake. What was his crime? Thomas Hawks had a child, a newborn, and so he did not want to baptize that child in the king's church because he saw that the immorality and sin of the church was so evil that, that he wanted to stay within his own congregation, a local congregation, and worship God apart from the English church. And so for that heinous crime, Thomas Hawks was going to be burned that day. Thousands had gathered to watch. Thomas, the night before, had met with his elders, and, and the elders were very concerned because they themselves, they knew, were about to face the same judgment because if you stood for Christ in those days, you often faced this, especially if you were an elder or a leader. And so the elders said, Thomas, give us a sign that, that we can stand the flames. Tell us, tell us some, some sign. Give us something. He said, when I'm in the flames, I will glorify my Savior and I will clap three times. And when you see that clap, you know that Christ is with me in the flames. So the next day arrives and the crowds have gathered and the executioner laps on the faggots and the fire begins begins to burn and the bishop of course is there and yelling curses and saying repent recant saying it will go easier for you maybe we'll throw a little gunpowder on you so that you'll explode faster and you won't have to ex no no he just glorifies god he forgives the executioner he lifts his hands to heaven and and glorifies the lord jesus christ but his body burns like a candle and begins to melt and the bottom melts and then the middle melts and his hands flop to the bottom and psh, the flames arise and there's nothing but blackened bones. The crowd turns away, discouraged, because the whole crowd by this time knew the story, that he was going to say that Christ was with him and he was going to give a sign and he never did. The crowd walked away and suddenly there was a gasp. And out of the flames came the bones. and flopped back into the fire. The crowd turned and grabbed the executioner and threw him in the flames, grabbed the bishop and threw him in the flames. And that was just about the end of human sacrifice by flames in England. The people of England had had it, and they had seen the power of God in a martyr's life. Well, William Brewster's getting a little bit uh, tired of this story. And so he turns to us that are on the tour and he says, England is lost in sin and death. So I'm starting a Bible study up in Scrooby in my house by candlelight. Won't you join me and we're going to believe God for a thorough reformation. We turn away in horror, not believing that this could ever change. We know the Lord, Lord's return must be soon. And so we, we hunker down, hoping that we will not face the same fate as Thomas Hawks. Well, seven years later, we start this little congregation, 
Four more years later, they're persecuted out of England. Thirty years later, they found the greatest Christian republic the world has ever known. They're called the Pilgrims. Not only that, but before we're too quick to judge England, we should remember that God cleansed England with the plague in 1603. 150,000 died in London alone. And then in 1646 with the, great, with the great fire that wiped out the entire city and the rats that caused the plague. After that, of course, there was the Puritan Reformation that swept through and brought godliness and Christianity into England. And even after they had fallen away in the, in the late 18th century, they were brought back by John Wesley and George Whitfield, and revival broke out again in England, and the greatest missionary movement the world has ever known, brought on by two countries. And William Brewster was right in the middle of it, believing God for great things, running his own race. You run the race for God. You always win in the long run because you do not run alone. You run with the army that is victorious, that is winning. Amen. Sometimes you just don't see it in the moment in which you're living. By 1735 in America, we were in the same boat. We had left our pilgrim heritage and we were, there were more brothels in New, in, in New England than there were churches. And only 10% of the people were going to church. People were lost as a goose to use Marshall's terminology. They didn't know God until a man named George Whitfield began to give sermons up from Savannah and another man began to preach in his little church in Connecticut and sinners in the hands of an angry God turned to repentance and revival in the hearts of the people. And one third of New England was saved in a period of 20 years and one half of the South was brought to faith in Christ. They were brought back to the principles of self and civil government and created the world's second constitutional republic after the Hebrew Republic some 3,000 years before. And we say it can't happen again. At a time like ours is just the kind of time when the hearts will break again by His grace and they will come flooding in. It won't just be through the power of our intellect. It won't just be through the power and force of the numbers we can put together to kick out bad people from government. It will come by the power of God who will convict the hearts of men of their sin. That's what we must believe God for. Because only when they're dead at the starting line will they ever be able to truly enter the race when they're resurrected by the Savior, right? That can happen, and I believe will happen, by God's grace, perhaps even in our time. I would ask you, are you running that race that you might win? It's spoken of in Hebrews. And what it is that's holding you back? Is it, is it hold, what's holding you back is economics? Is what's holding you back a bad mother or a bad relationship or something you had in your past that didn't qualify you? I think this passage deals with that. It says we lay aside the sin. Has that been handled? By Jesus Christ, it's been dealt with. Put it aside. You're no longer that. That's the dead flesh. You're dead to that. You're alive to Christ. And then what is this other thing, the weight? This weight thing, I have to deal with this on a daily basis 
this illegit thing with me. I don't know what it is for you, but I feel unqualified. I wake up some mornings and I think, I'm an illegitimate child. I don't even know who my father and mother are. I, I don't think it's right that I should even preach. I don't feel qualified. I got weights in my life. You got any weights in your life? Not even sins that you've, you're doing right now, but weights that just hang on you? That you put in the back of your car so you get less mileage? You actually just don't go far in the Christian life because, because you're holding yourself back, because you're hanging on to the past. You're hanging on to things that are just weights, and you, you almost defeat yourself. Ever been there? You really don't want to succeed? Because it would almost prove disprove what you feel about yourself putting aside those weights i'm not what i say i am i'm what christ says i am i'm a new man in christ i'm a prophet priest and king to the most high god and i've been called with a high calling and i can stand before you today and proclaim the kingdom of god in its victorious future and i should be not afraid to do it because i'm his son and you're his son and you're his daughter we go forward in that confidence, not in our own. And so we do run the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What was his, what was his goal? It was to die for our sins, to then be enthroned on high, to rule over the entire universe with his Father, right? Did he accomplish his task? Yes. What a cast do we have? We've been given the task to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to take the great commission, to disciple the nations throughout the world. And that task is not given to us so that we might fail. It's given to us because we will win. Amen. We will accomplish what God has called us to do. So let's go forward in confidence that he has won the victory and he has qualified us for this race. And let us run with joy every morning that we have that privilege just like I did for my mom, to run in a race that I've already qualified for. I said, how did I do, Mom? And now it's a much higher calling. Now it's our Savior, our God. And we look to him and say, oh God, I run for you. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. Thank you for this wonderful congregation that loves you, that understands your power and your sovereignty. And I pray that you would you would lift them up and raise them up and, and use them in such a mighty way to bring revival to this area and to this country. Lord God, we thank you for, for what you're doing. We thank you that even though we do not see all that is happening, we know that you are at work to bring about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we, we look forward to that day and we dedicate ourselves to your race that we might come to the end of our days and here at the finish line, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.